Well, anyway, okay, let's let's hope second time's the charm. Yes, <laughs> cuz we already recorded this episode, but we didn't get the audio track from Haley's mic. So, we're going to do it again. <laughs> How mad are you going to be at me if this episode's fucked up too? I will kill you. I will, <laughs> I will fly to Montana. <laughs> <laughs> and I will punch a hole in your chest. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right, here we go. The second time around. Here we go. All right. <clears throat> Podcast voice. Hello, and welcome to the films I wish I made. My name is Ryan Rochelle, and I am a filmmaker. You can find me at Ryan Rochelle. That's R-A-C-H-A-L-L. That's on the I-G. Or you can follow the production company Dakins Productions. That's D-A-A-K-I-N-S. And with me here is my co-host. Haley Devlin. I'm a producer-writer. And you can follow me on Instagram at SpookyCookieHaley. And I'm having a situation with my Twitter. But um, if you go to my Instagram, <laughs> I might post a new handle. <laughs> and I'll, I'll elaborate that on the next podcast. Yeah, we'll, we'll keep you updated. <laughs> okay, so on today's episode, we are discussing Eastern Promises. It's a crime drama from 2007, starring Viggo Mortensen with Naomi Watts and Vincent Cassell. You may know Vincent Cassell from the third season of Westworld. I just got to season three and I, I was like, ooh, it's Vincent. <laughs> oh, you know, I keep hearing good things about Westworld, but I haven't checked it out. You should check it out. You should right. definitely check it out. I'm going to pay for HBO, might as well. Yeah. And uh, so Eastern Promises is written by Stephen Knight, directed by David Cronenberg. And uh, interestingly enough, Cronenberg and Vigo had just come off of doing A History of Violence in 2005 together. I haven't seen it. Oh, yeah. No, that's a great film. I might have to talk about that in season two. <laughs> um, yeah. Incidentally, Cronenberg directed another film we will be discussing later this season, The Fly. That's Haley's pick. Well, and aren't we doing Nightbreed, too? I don't know. That's up to you. I mean, we're, we might do some bonus episodes for you guys. So, you know, head over to our coffee page and keep this series alive and we'll treat you to some bonus content that won't be for the general public that'll be exclusive. Oh, and I, I just want to clarify, he didn't direct Nightbreed, but he is creepy in it. Just so people know that I know what I'm talking about. I had to clarify that. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you say something out loud in the podcast and you're like, ah, but then people will think I don't know movies that well. I need to go back and clarify what I meant about that. Like, I guess. I mean, I don't care about people, so. Yeah. <laughs> All right. right I know I know what I'm talking about. And I know when I don't, and that's when I shut up. <laughs> um, anyway, so I was, I guess, 19 or 20 when I first saw this film. It, I saw it when it came out. I believe I rented it. Um, and then years later, I bought the Blu-ray because I loved it so much. And I've seen it at least five or six times. Uh, I guess this is seven for the podcast now. Mm -hmm. And the biggest influence it had on me was really just the gritty neo-noir tone and visuals and also contrast in lighting that's something that had a real impact on the way i wanted to shape the look of my films and i've come a long way since this film because it's been over a decade and so i've definitely developed my look but this is definitely the film that kicked off my obsession with modern noir cinematography yeah 
I could see that when I watch your stuff. It, it's gritty. You do light it pretty similar. Yeah. I, I, just, I see the inspiration. Now that you say that and you made me watch this movie and I go back and I think of like when we're shooting The Pale of the Pusher and just other things I've even just seen you storyboard. I really get it now that I've seen this movie. Well, I'm glad that it kind of comes through. And I mean, you know, I've, I've obviously made it my own, but I'm not doing big budget films. So, you know, I am working with limitations. I don't always get exactly what I want but I'm striving to get a certain look. And this is where that look, I think one of the first films I can stem back to. I mean, before this, I watched a lot of action, of course, and I had an idea of look, but I was watching a lot of things also like anime and, and you know, I grew up watching Kung Fu films and martial arts. So I'm really into martial arts. Yeah. Even when the Matrix came out, I really loved that. But I started to see more and more stuff like that. And I didn't want to be this generic kind of like action heavy director with no personal touch, you know? Yeah. And if you're interested in seeing a no budget film and seeing what you can do with sheer willpower, <laughs> check out The Tale of a Pusher. It's streaming on Amazon. If you have Prime, it's free. You know, it takes a second to get into. You adjust to the low production value, but there's a good story there. Before we get any further, I guess I should summarize the film just for those people who haven't seen it in a while. But spoiler alert. Hey everyone, if you haven't seen Eastern Promises, make sure you go check out the official release. These are great films that everyone should see. Frankly, if you haven't, you're really missing out. So go watch the movie and then come back to the films I wish I made. Or the curse of spoilers will befall you for a hundred years. Do come back to the podcast. We need your support. Yeah, that's a pretty (laughs) essential step. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) okay so in summary eastern promises i'm just gonna go ahead and read it because this film has a lot going on it does yeah um okay so set in london the film kicks off with a throat slitting scene in a barber shop that sets events in motion further down the line but we quickly are introduced to a russian pregnant teenager tatiana she is rushed to the hospital and dies during labor but the baby survives Anna, a midwife, takes it upon herself to investigate and see if the child has any family to prevent the baby girl from going into the system. She does this by looking through Tatiana's diary, which needs to be translated from Russian. This diary leads her to the Russian mafia's doorstep. Of course, she has no idea that they're Russian mafia initially. And this is where we meet Nikolai, played by Viggo Mortensen, and his friend Kirill, uh, played by Vincent Cassell. And then we also meet Semyon, which is Kirill's father. And he offers to translate the diary, but it's clear he may not be trustworthy. So we come to find Semyon raped Tatiana when she was 14 years old and forced her to work as a prostitute in their brothel. Nikolai gets close to Anna while serving Kirill and Semyon and climbing the ranks of the Russian mob. Yeah, so essentially it's a comedy. Yeah, <laughs> so, I know we're releasing these depressing ass movie episodes in November, which is, you know, Thanksgiving. So, I mean, it's totally appropriate because I guess a lot of people kill themselves around the holidays. Yeah. So, yeah, that yeah. happens, too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Stay tuned, guys. We're going to get cheerier. I, I, I promise we're going to have some fun movies for Christmas. <laughs> I promise. In all seriousness, this film weighs on you. It's oh, yes. heavy. It's a great film, though. I mean, 
So just to talk about its achievements really quickly, and it's a lot, I don't even wanna get really into it, but if you go on IMDb, you can just scroll and scroll for a while because it has 74 nominations and 28 wins. Vigo was nominated Best Actor for an Oscar, and then he ended up winning Best Actor for the British Independent Film Awards. For a Saturn Award, it won Best International Film, and God, just the list goes on. You can really just scroll through and see all the nominations and and 28 actual wins um so yeah it it had a budget of 32.3 million and the worldwide gross was 56.1 million so it did all right and it was well received critically obviously so right on um so i really want to talk about a couple things that stood out to me yeah i guess one thing i'll touch on really quickly is just that opening scene where they link death and birth with blood because we go from the throat slitting to the pregnant girl in the pharmacy. Yeah. And I thought that was some really good symbolism in terms of just we're ending life. We see all this blood pour out of this guy's throat. And then we go into the pharmacy with this girl. And at first you don't know she's pregnant, but then uh, you think like her water breaks or something, but then you see blood and like, she's not okay. Something's wrong. It's very full circle. Yeah. Uh, in the hospital, by the way, that fake baby is so convincing. Uh, yeah, that <laughs> fake baby. I hope that won an award. <laughs> <laughs> I know. A very good uh, special effects makeup. Done very well. Um, like the, the throat slitting, you know, it's done in a way yeah. where. Unapologetically. Yeah. And Cronenberg is not afraid to show it. Yeah, it's visceral. It's in there. Other mobster movies, I don't think would have shown it, but I think we get to see it because it's Cronenberg, you know? Yeah, I mean, that's what you have when you have a horror film director. I think they're familiar with special effects and gore and how to shoot it and the angles that convinces the audience. In most mob movies, you'd go over the shoulder and the cut would happen with their back to the camera. And then if you wanted to, they'd turn around and grab their neck and cover the wound. And you maybe see blood spurting out from underneath their hand. That's like a very typical way. And it's it's an artistic approach. Yeah. But Cronenberg gets in there and you see it and you feel it and you have to watch it actually happen. And it, it, like you said, it's visceral and they, they just don't shy away from opening someone's throat in front of your eyes. No, they don't. And it just hits, it hits heavier. It does. I think it, Adds a level of realism to the mob violence in this movie. The fact that he comes from a horror background because you watch something, I don't know, like um, Casino. There's some violence in that movie, but it's you can still like those guys, those mobsters, because of the way they shoot the violence in that movie. It's not as raw as this. Yeah. That movie gets really screwed up, you know, with people getting beat to death and then put in graves and they look really bloody and messy. Yeah, yeah. But it's just not the same. Right, right. It's not the first time I've seen that, you know, happen. It's like even with Death Sentence, um, with Kevin Bacon directed by James Wan, you know, he came off of doing Saw and then did this like gritty action revenge movie, but it gets really gory. You have people like shooting fingers off and like seeing that in all its glory. It's like, it's interesting when you get that kind of combination, like a horror director going into the action genre. It is. It is because, you know, it It just, it grounds it so much because this is real life horror. This is the horror of the world is sex trafficking, is mob violence. 
you know, and there's not always people with a butcher knife chasing teenagers in the woods. That's not really realism. Yeah. This is what actually makes the world a scary place. Yes, a, a dark and scary place for sure. So I like that. I, I love I love the realistic horror of it. It's funny because this film, for being a noir film, it's actually a, a bit bright um, in the beginning, especially, which is misleading. It is. Um, a lot of things are well lit, but they still have contrast. You know, you have these strong key lights causing dark shadows. But for the most part, you can see a lot of things and... You, I think it almost lulls you into this false sense of security of like, oh, it's a sunny day. And then later you have this mentally handicapped person just get their throat slit in a graveyard in the middle of the day. And you're just like, oh, no one's safe, no matter how bright it is outside. <laughs> and, you know, even though it starts off so bloody, it's almost like I think, oh, OK, maybe that's going to be it. Maybe that's like the high point of violence because it seems kind of like more bright and and it feels safer after that, that it, it tricks you into thinking maybe maybe that was it. Yeah. At least for me on my first watch, I didn't I didn't look at what it was going to be about and I didn't realize it was going to be this violent. Even having watched it so many times and, and years ago, coming back to it for the podcast, I still had this darker imagery in my mind when I remembered it. And then I started and I was like, oh, wow, this movie's actually a lot brighter than I remember. And then slowly but surely the darkness comes and the darkness arrives really with our central gangster characters, uh, Nikolai and Kirill. I mean, there's this great shot of them silhouetted when they're walking through this tunnel to get to the street. Oh, right. And that's that's one of the perfect examples of neo-noir high contrast lighting. Like the street is almost blown out and you you see perfect silhouettes of these two gangsters. And I love the wardrobe too. They just, they look so suave and the, their coats and everything. Like these guys... These guys ooze money and danger. Like, don't fuck with these people. <laughs> yeah, it, it really sets up their characters in a nice way. Tells you exactly who they are without having to say a thing, you know? Yeah, all the characters are beautifully introduced, including Semyon. He's, uh, he comes across as this kind old soul full of culture and love, and he's seemingly innocent. But because you know what the establishment is, you really get that inkling of, um, I probably shouldn't trust this person. Mm-hmm. And slowly but surely, I mean, that's confirmed. But it's like, how could this nice old man be anything but that? Yeah. <laughs> this film actually inspired me to write my own Russian gangster film, and it's called Vince. And maybe one day I'll actually get to make it. But that's how much this film had an impact on me. I literally wrote my own Eastern promises that I want to make someday. I remember that. Yeah, that was that was when I was working at that talent agency and like we were looking at it and we liked it. But, you know, unfortunately, I think nothing happened at the time. But I remember reading it for you and being like, whoa, this is good. Yeah, I mean, everyone who's read it loves it. And that's the thing. Like I said, uh, people who read my work, take the time to look at my vision, everything. they, They see a lot of potential, but that doesn't mean that those people are in a position to fund a million dollar movie, unfortunately. No, definitely. But I do remember like growing up, we had always talked about how much we love movies together. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, you know, we grew up in LA and everybody there loves movies. But I remember when I read that script of yours, I was like, all right, he's actually good at 
telling stories and he's not just one of those full of shit people who's like, I like movies so much. I write my own movies, blah, blah, blah. Right. <laughs> thank you. Like- <laughs> well, thank you. I'm glad I'm glad that was, you know, and that's why I wanted to write something that wasn't just like an anime matrixy ripoff. Yeah, <laughs> it was a Eastern Promises ripoff. No, <laughs> no, but uh, <laughs> it is funny, though, because you're supposed to do that thing where you say like, oh, it's this meets that. And honestly, like, I don't even. I'm like, it's it's not this meets that. It's Eastern Promises meets Eastern Promises. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, anyway, I mean, I have my own story to tell, but yeah. yeah. I do love gangster films in general, though. I've also written a Korean gangster film. We did The Tale of a Pusher, which is, I hate to use that the term urban, but you know, what, what else do you call it? It's, I mean, I don't think it's a black gangster film because no. we have- we have different characters of different ethnicities, but it's an inner city gangster film, I guess. Yeah, I think it was just, a, you know, a story about people who were put in a bad position. Right, right. Yeah, it's yeah. like, uh, as as the synopsis goes, between a rock and a hard place. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, which is a pun because they're selling the cocaine. It's <laughs> yeah. I don't know if anyone ever picks that on, up on that. Oh, I picked <laughs> up on that. Cool. Thank you. <laughs> um. So I love greedy realism. Uh, one thing I want to talk about is the racism that's portrayed. Yeah. When this is Anna's, uh, I guess, was it uncle, right? It was yeah. her uncle, yeah. Yeah, Anna's uncle. He says, that's why your baby died inside you. And he's saying that because she was impregnated by someone of a different ethnic group. And the first time I heard that, man, I couldn't believe it. That shit hit me pretty hard i was like oh my god i can't believe he said that that yeah i'm surprised they put that in movie because that is some yeah. cold-blooded shit to say to your own family i mean i think a lot right. of white families their parents are casually racist at home yeah obviously that's a big problem in our country and yeah in the in the world you know and people people don't like to talk about it and it's not even put in movies that much so, you know, to see it depicted to that extreme, too, like he's saying something that bad. It was like, whoa. And, and I talk about realism. I, I appreciate that scene as a minority because I do appreciate honest portrayals of racism, bigotry, hate, etc. Because we don't live in a post-racial world, whatever that's supposed to mean. Yeah, no. I mean, you can't sweep racism under the rug like it no longer exists. I mean, it's something that we should continue to address and condemn, which they do. The, his family members react in a way that they, they are appalled by what he says. And you have people who have those kinds of home lives. And how is a kid ever supposed to know that that is appalling if he's surrounded by family members who don't find it appalling? Yeah. Or by people who don't have the courage to say something, too. Exactly. So seeing that in a film and seeing people react to that negatively. You know, that carries weight with it on the audience and the viewer, regardless of their age, but especially yeah. if you're impressionable. Yeah, no, I, I think it was a good lesson on how to handle that, how to shut people down when they say things like that. Yeah, I think there are a lot of great slow reveals in this movie. Oh, hell yeah, there are. Yeah. It's what makes it so fucking watchable. Right, because you think you're watching one kind of movie. And then casually they take a left turn on you and you've got to play catch up. They very much so do. Yeah. 
you know, Semyon shows his dark side. Um, it seems like he wants to protect his screw up son. So you still think, oh, he's a kind old man. I know he's in the mafia or whatever, but he's older and he's not that bad. I haven't seen him do anything. Yeah. He was trying to get this diary away from her so he could protect his screw up son. That's what it is, right? But then like the very next scene, you find out the truth because her uncle is also translating the diary. And yeah. so Semyon is lying. And that's when you find out he was the one who raped this 14-year-old girl. And he's trying to cover up his mistakes. He's trying to cover up the fact that that's his baby because he can go to prison. Yeah. And he actually tries to task his son with killing the baby to just dispose of evidence. Yeah. I mean, from going to like the sweet grandpa, you know, at the, I think it was the Christmas dinner, was it? Playing the violin. Yeah. Yeah, with the little the little nieces. With the little nieces to oh my god, this is that same man, that monster is also capable of wanting to kill a baby. And you juxtapose that with that scene where he shows up at the hospital. Yeah. What a monster. Cause you still think you're still on his side at that point, like, okay, I understand what he's trying to do. And it's they 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 rip the rug right underneath you in the very next scene. And I love it. Oh yeah. And then similarly. We find out that Nikolai, Vigo's character, we've been thinking we're watching this mafia gangster guy who's maybe coming around because he meets Anna and you think, oh, he has inner conflict. He's part of this gangster lifestyle, but he's having this inner conflict with this beautiful woman who's come into his life and he wants to do the right thing and help her. And that's why he's finding himself in a difficult situation. Right. Only to find out that he's actually an undercover cop. <laughs> yeah, no, I I was not expecting that. I was starting to get hints throughout the film. I was like, you know, this guy has a lot of dimensions to him. What are they going to do with that? Like, but, you know, I by the time I started suspecting maybe he is a cop, it was really close to the point where they revealed it. Right. But they present it in a way where it's not necessarily a twist. It's just the story is unfolding. Yeah. And I liked that. Yeah, it's done so casually. I mean, I, I think it's a great reveal because I was all gun ho for this like conflicted uh, anti-hero narrative that I thought I was going down. Yeah. And then all of a sudden I realized, oh, that's the center of conflict. He's trying to be a cop and do right by his oath and still maintain his cover. Exactly. And then it makes you go back. And then in that moment, you start rethinking the entire film that you've been watching so far. And you realize that wasn't the film. And you think about all these little moments and they come back to you and you're like, oh, that's why he did that. Or that's exactly I, I love that sort of thing. Exactly. I think it's worth a second watch because you get to see it in a completely new context. You do. And so that's actually what I wanted to ask you a little bit more, because I wish I could go back to watching it for the first time like you got to for the podcast because that's when it's at its strongest. Oh, yeah. Just tell me your experience in like watching it for the first time. I was just glued to the scene because there's so many little reveals that you don't realize are reveals as you're watching it. And like, it's like some of these things, it's like I could tell that was important, but I didn't know why. And and this is for multiple characters, not just um, Nikolai, but... Right. You know, with... Semyon, if I'm pronouncing that right. <laughs> Semyon. <laughs> Semyon. You know, you see all his little reveals and you see he's a monster and his son. I mean, I was slowly starting to think that maybe he was gay during the movie. Then that became more of a thing. And it's just every. Right. The movie is so layered. There's so much going on here. Every single 
character actually kind of has that journey in some way where they're slowly revealing their true selves and it all comes together to create this amazing story. It's 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 so captivating, so well written and so well executed. It's it's like the mastery of movies. It's yeah. The people involved knew storytelling so well. It, I'm just speechless. I mean, I, I just don't even know how to describe watching it. You yeah, know what I mean? I, yeah, no, I agree. <laughs> Which is bad because I know we're podcasters are supposed to be able to describe it, but it's just everything is so perfect. I don't know what other words to use without sounding cheesy, you know? It's definitely cinema at its finest. And it was, like I said, it was critically well received. Yeah. It's not that old of a film. So I think it, still it's aged well because we are in a fast moving society now where tons of movies come out every year now. Right. But not movies of this caliber come out so often. No, they don't. And cinema at its finest is the absolute best way to describe this. You were dead on the nail. Yeah, I just uh, going back to to Kirill, played by Vincent Cassell, uh, if that's how you say his last name. Uh-huh. When you talk about his the reveals for his character, because it's not just about him potentially being a homosexual. It's like he's one of those characters you hate, you want to hate. Oh, yeah. And not love to hate. You just... He's painted like he's such a fucking incompetent asshole. Yeah. And you just can't wait for him to bite it because you figure he's going to die. Yeah, you do. I mean, he's he's one of those monsters where you're just like, oh, they're making him this awful so that they can kill him. Right. That, at least that's what it seems like. And then you're like, oh, no. He's a very actually tragic figure in the film. He's essentially suffering abuse from his father his entire life. Yeah. And that's why he's an alcoholic, not because he's just some stupid screw up. Yeah. And so he becomes, you know, he goes from being this asshole that you want to hate to being this very tragic character that you really can sympathize, maybe even empathize with if you've been through anything similar to him. Yeah. And I don't know that I've seen that often in movies. Right. Right. To to actually go to that extent or do that level of a turnaround without some lame excuse or like flashback to be like, oh, this is what really happened. You know? Yeah. So that's, again, going back to watching it a second time with that context, you you really feel for his character and the way he's acting out and trying to cover up the fact that he really might be gay in this film. And I feel that it's a bit ambiguous. Um, I know you didn't feel that way, but... No, I didn't. I felt like it was never literally confirmed. It was just rumors, and we can get into that more, I guess, a little later, but it's still, it's one of those things that whether he is or not, it's the fact that those rumors are going around in like the CD crime underworld. That's not something that's good either way, whether it's true no. or not for him. That's the whole reason why they slit the guy's throat at the beginning. It's weird because I don't even know if that's the truth. You can't, it's hard to trust what Nikolai is telling him. It almost seems like that might be true, but it also might be him trying to cover for his friend. Oh, you know, I didn't think about that. I mean, there's just a lot of layers. I, I don't know if you can take a lot of stuff at face value in this film. Yeah. It's hard to trust people. It's a film about deception. Yeah, it is. Vigo is great in this role. I mean, he's... He's so intimidating, yet charming at the same time. And that's not easy to pull off. I mean, no, he's no, walking it, on a tightrope this whole film. 
Right. It's like imagine a girl walking on the street at night and somebody's walking behind her and she like clutches her purse, but also gives him her phone number. Like, like, can you imagine that happening? Not really. That's what we mean by that's difficult to pull off. Yeah. That was such a perfect metaphor. I mean, my God. (laughs) I thought it was a funny metaphor, but yeah. No, but there really is no other way to describe it. It's hard because it's such an impossibility. I wouldn't have known how to describe it. Yeah. This is another thing that's important to me. Um, Because as much as it is a story about deception, it's also centers around friendship and brotherhood and sort of the the responsibility that Nikolai feels uh, with Kirill. That's why he's like always protecting him. And it's very tragic, though, because. By the end of the film, you know, it's not going to end well. Yeah, I mean, it can't, I guess. It's it's going to run its course at some point with obviously Nikolai being an undercover cop. But it seems like he is genuine in his desire to protect his friend, Korea. Yeah. And he's he's literally covering for him and he's always acting like, you know, oh, this was his idea and like trying to talk him up to Semyon, the father, who doesn't think much at all of his son. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so friendship is really important to me. That's something that's a theme that I explore a lot or touch on a lot in my stories, because uh, I mean, it's friendship has always been important to me, but I lost my best friend 10 years ago when I was like 22. And so, you know, Dakins uh, actually stands for Daniel Akins. And that's just a way to always remember and honor him. And because we had always done creative stuff together and kind of talked about ideas and tried to collaborate and keep each other moving. And, you know, I, so I think that kind of support is really important in life because it's a certain level of support that when you find a real true friend, like you can't really get that kind of support from anyone else in your life. Your, your, your parents may love you, but they're not going to be able to do the things that a best friend will because they can't meet you as an equal. Yeah. And give you that equal level of respect that you will return to them. Yeah. That's the only place that you can get that strong, almost familial bond, but as equals. And that's so important in a, in any relationship. You know, that's why you don't get that level of respect with a lot of family members or they don't come through in the same way. It's because in some regard, they're either looking up to you or looking down because they're they're older or younger, you know? I think that's why it tears at the heartstrings so much in the movie. Right. That he's doing so much for Kirill. And there's that really powerful moment between them when Nikolai convinces him not to kill the baby and they're holding each other. Yeah. And, and it feels so powerful. That's, that is a really good scene. Once you realize how much Nikolai is doing for this guy, even though he's an undercover cop, because... I'd like to think that in some aspect, he understands that this is somebody who was born into a tragic situation. He was born into a monster and never had a chance to have a real life. Yeah, you never know. Maybe he'll get a plea deal. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully. Go into witness protection. Right. And then die of alcohol poisoning. Probably. (laughs) (laughs) Because that's how dark this movie is. Oh, man. I guess we could talk a little bit more about cinematography. There's this kind of balancing act that this film does. It's sometimes symmetrical, but I don't want to say like, it's not like Wes Anderson, you know, like symmetry. It's like, 
the shots are balanced well and there's symmetry in the shots, but then there's also things that sort of break up that symmetry, but maintain the balance. Similar to Kubrick, Stanley Kubrick kind of did that more so in that vein, you know, like. Right. And it's it's not easy to do, but it's done beautifully in this film. It's something you have to be very conscientious of because it's not just camera placement. It's also the way you light it. Yeah. And the blocking of the actors and um, the poses they strike have to be displayed in a very particular way and shot from a particular angle. Like there's this one shot in particular I love where Vigo is standing before all the Russian mafia captains. Yeah, I remember that scene. That was a cool scene. Yeah, and they go to this wide shot and he's supposed to be submissive because he's pledging loyalty. Still, like the way he stands up how the shadows like accentuate his muscle definition and he, cause he's just wearing like underwear in this scene and they're all in suits. Mm-hmm. It feels like he could just rip all their heads off at any moment. Cause they're like older guys. Yeah. There's like five or six of them on the right side of the frame and just him on the left side of the frame. But he's so powerful and commanding in that shot that he's enough to balance out those five people on the other side. He is. It's wild how you can just pick up on it so easy that it's so clear that he has more power. And I think there's also the symbolism is that good is better than evil, too, because he's the good guy. Right. And we don't know that in this point in the movie, but that's one of those things when you watch it a second time, you realize the message that they were trying to convey subtly there. I love that line, too, um, where they say, you don't have tattoos, you don't exist. And you can see all of his tattoos in that scene. Oh, yeah. All his all his mafia tattoos that basically tell your story. Yeah. Um, That's another thing that, again, on the second watch, that is so wild when you realize he's just an undercover cop and his whole body is tatted. Like how committed he is. Yeah, yeah. There's another shot that's just after that where he's actually receiving the tattoo for the new captain rank. And it's very symmetrical. And actually, you know what? I'm going to use it for the YouTube image because I love that shot so much. But he's uh, (laughs) he's laying in the booth uh, while he's getting the tattoo. And again, perfect symmetry with the booth and the lamps and the lighting and the, the decor of this restaurant. You get this nice steady camera move. Then that symmetry is broken up by the way he's kind of splayed out laying on the couch. And the tattoo artist is uh, leaning over to give the tattoo. Yeah. And I I remember watching that and being like, wow, it's just such a striking image. It really sticks with you as you're watching it. Honestly, it's hard to cinematically compose a wide shot. It's just the wider you go, the harder it is to maintain your production value. And that's why you need such a big budget when you go on a wide shot. Um, It's easy to get in close and show emotions and tight and light. A small frame, but when you need to light a wide shot and still have all that striking imagery uh, maintained, that's where, you know, it's a balancing act, (laughs) not just in the composition on set with all of your lighting equipment and all of your gear and all of your crew. Yeah. This film, it has a good budget. So it's, it's not, it's no indie budget film. So that's why there are a lot of great wide shots that show off a lot of information and artistry yeah definitely a lot of artistry a lot of thought like i watched it two or three times for the podcast i I picked up on more stuff each time i was like oh there's symbolism here there's symbolism there it's 
Yeah, I mean, and it has it has complex moral dilemmas and choices, and you know, you want everybody to do the right thing. I mean, at a certain point, you're thinking that Nikolai killed their uncle, and you're like, well, fuck him, he was racist. <laughs> yeah. You know, but you know, and Anna has to go to him and really ask, where is my uncle? She's worried. She no one's heard from him, and he's like. Oh, he's, you know, he's in his hometown. I told him he had to leave so he'd be safe. That was pretty creepy. Yeah, I was pretty on the fence. I was like, is this guy actually dead? I was like, maybe he is that committed to being undercover that he would actually kill somebody so it wouldn't fuck everything up. Like, I don't, I don't know what to think. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely not going by the book. <laughs> yeah, he was just chilling in Scotland, but, you know. Yeah, just keeping it real in Scotland. Yeah. There are uh, some fun trivia facts I would like to go over really quick. Ooh. Who doesn't love some fun trivia? Let's get into that before I get into changes I would make. Trivia is always fun. Yeah. Yeah. So we were talking about tattoos and Mm -hmm. you can actually see uh, one of the tattoos that Vigo has is real. And it says the nine. Mm -hmm. And that's a tattoo he got with uh, eight other actors from Lord of the Rings. Uh, they, They basically did a pact and they all got the nine tattooed on themselves because you know they did all those films together uh that's cool yeah so you it's actually visible in this film i believe it's on his shoulder i forgot which shoulder but it's hmm. it's you know if you look close enough you can see it they just left it in there yeah i need to pause this movie to look at his naked body more because clearly <laughs> i didn't do that enough um <laughs> well yeah first that's... few times so i'll have to look even harder for yeah, that. yeah that's number. what the pause button is for yeah um <laughs> And so a cool fact about Vigo, um, another one. So Vigo prepped for the role by traveling alone to Moscow and St. Petersburg uh, with no translator and just drove around kind of just interacting with people and trying to find his way in those cities. Um, That's fun. Yeah. And then obviously he did some traditional research on, you know, Russian organized crime as well. But I thought that was pretty cool that he just kind of threw himself in at first. Yeah, I mean, that's you see it in the role. You know, he takes his work seriously. He takes his job as an actor seriously and it pays off because he's one of my favorite actors. I think the guy's just incredible any single time he hits the screen, you know, so. Yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sad that I don't see him in more movies, honestly. Yeah, I wish he would act more, but I. I think I get the feeling that he's like one of those actors that's very picky about the movies he does. Yeah, he's just, if it's not there, if it's not in the script, I can tell, yeah, he's not going to do it. Yeah. And that's fair enough. I mean, quality over quantity, that's fine with me. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and then another interesting fun trivia is that there was supposed to be a sequel, and that's why they kind of leave it open-ended. At least it knowing there's a sequel, you can see how it's open-ended because he's a captain now and he's going to go on to continue this case. But man, it's, it's one of those things where God, what a sequel to this, I can only imagine how dark it could get and how much heavier things could get as he rises further and further in the Russian organized crime. That would have been fascinating to see a sequel. Yeah. And it it's works as a one-off, but... Yeah, but these things, sometimes these things just don't happen. Yeah. It's so strong by itself. Like, I, I wouldn't want them to go back and try to make a sequel now, I don't think. No, but... it doesn't need one. I mean, I'd be interested 
I certainly direct it if anyone approached me <laughs> without hesitation. <laughs> yeah. I'd be like, yes, I, mean, I will do it. How do you it. turn that down? <laughs> yeah. Yes, I will do it. Will, do you want to read the script? Yes, I will also read the script, but also I will do it. <laughs> You're like, don't need to read. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> At some point I will read the script, but I'm doing it. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, one more. Uh, there were no stuntmen in the bathhouse fight scene. That was 100% the real actors. That was one of the best fight scenes ever shot in any movie ever. And speaking of that, let's talk about that fight scene, because actually that's what I mentioned earlier. The The bathhouse fight scene is the scene that won the award for most memorable scene. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, it's so raw and kick-ass and doesn't shy away from anything. And you can tell that there's no stunt double in it. Like, it's just... Yeah. It's, oof. It's gritty and it's realistic and it's not a polished fight scene, but no. you believe it and it's still impressive. And that's that's another big impact that this had on me. I actually watch a lot of Korean films also, and they do something similar. Um, they'll have very gritty, grounded fight sequences, but still with a martial mm -hmm. arts aspect to them. Because, I mean, yeah. if, if you're in Korea, you know, chances are you may have taken Taekwondo at some point or learned yeah. a little bit. Um, they have mandatory military service too. So well, I'm exactly. Sure they have that, scales. and then Taekwondo is like the the nation's sport. It's like baseball, you know, in America. Yeah. It's like kids study Taekwondo the same way we put kids in baseball here. So chances are you that doesn't mean you're a great martial artist, but chances are you know a little bit, you know something. Yeah. So when a fight breaks out, it makes sense that you would try to throw a roundhouse kick. <laughs> but yeah, it also makes sense that you wouldn't be as good as Bruce Lee and you might fall or knock that guy down and fall with him and have to scramble and scrap and get back up. And so going back to Eastern promises, it's, it's very similar to that. I mean, the Russians have martial arts as well. Um, even like with Spetsnaz, they're like elite military force has all those crazy trick martial arts, uh, and stuff like that. So we don't know exactly if Nikolai's character has martial arts training or, or uh, should I say military training, but boy, mm. can he fight and he's a tactical fighter. So obviously he has some sort of training being a police officer. Yeah. I just, I felt like I was holding my breath. That so that whole scene, it's just, it's so grounded. It's a real fight to the death. And I actually feel it. Like it didn't feel like, like a movie fight. You know, yeah. it stopped feeling like a movie. Like it felt like I was there and I'm like, oh, my God, somebody's going to die. Like it just it was so grounded, so much better than any other fight scene in other movies where you're like, yeah, yeah, this is a fight scene. Somebody's going to win. You know, it just I don't know. Right. Because when you have fight choreography, essentially, it's a dance. And a lot of times, yeah. as good as a Jackie Chan film is, you still are watching a dance and it feels like you're watching a dance. Yes, thank you. That is the that's a great way to describe it. Yeah, and so this one does not feel like a dance. <laughs> no. And No, not at all. And uh props to Vigo for doing the whole thing naked. <laughs> that really added to it, you know, cuz it's like, yeah, you're in a bathhouse, you're going to be naked, and it's like you there you see a little bit of his privates, you know, but it doesn't feel like they're doing it to be gratuitous. They're just doing it to be accurate, which I think is yeah. why, you know, you're holding your breath while you're watching it because it, it makes it feel so much more real. Well, exactly. Because if someone came, if two guys came at you in a sauna where you're nude, you know, you're relaxing, you got the towel over your shoulders or whatever, and two guys come in to stab you to death with knives, the last thing you're thinking about is, 
oh no, my privates are showing. <laughs> yeah. So the fact that, yeah, it's not gratuitous, that it's not like full frontal, but it's shot in a way where they're not trying to hide it. It's not like the Austin Powers gag where something's always blocking his genitals. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's realistic. Like, okay, well, we're cutting to them and we're cutting back to him and there's a lot going on and there's movement. And it never seems like we're going out of our way to avoid nudity. It just, it's there, exactly. it happens. It's just par for the course. It's not glorified and it's not yeah. condemned. And that's how it should be shot. Cause you know, in movies, sometimes they do take you out of reality cause you know, they don't want to show something and it almost does start to feel like an Austin Powers gag with the editing and the framing. And it just feels too fucking contrived because they're trying so hard to hide something. Yeah. Cause you know, our, our film is going to have a bit of nudity in it yeah. and i don't believe it's going to be uh gratuitous i don't want to do that at all but i was just talking to the actresses about it because that's a discussion you need to have and i was saying the same thing i was like you know it's one of those things like i always hate in a movie where you see like a couple laying in bed and there's a wide shot and then like you know the the woman's body like she has the blanket covering her entire body the blankets up to her neck and then the guy has the blanket like down at his waist and I'm like, who does that? Why is that a thing? Like, what are you doing? Yeah. But it's it's such a dumb Hollywood thing of like, okay, well, we don't want to show any nudity. Oh, but sex sells. So, you know, we'll show as much as we can. So let's let's show the guys sexy abs and like, let's show the girls sexy back. And it's just like, if like, yeah. like make this realistic, like either have the covers covering both of them. Like, okay, it's cold and they're under the cover, cuddling naked. I get it. They're naked under the covers. I don't need to see. Or just yeah. have the, you know, the blanket at their waist then. And I guess you get some nipples in the yeah. shot. Like, is it that big of a deal? I've just, yeah. I know that I've never lain in bed naked, like with the, with the blanket perfectly at my crotch. <laughs> never. Yeah. Who does and that? And it's like when everybody's using these same movie tricks, it starts to feel so formulaic and it's like, I get that subconscious reminder that I'm watching a movie. Exactly. It almost takes you out of the story for a moment. Exactly. And I try to, I, I want to get around that. I, I definitely don't want to do that in our film and, or any of my subsequent films. So yeah. I appreciate that in, in Eastern promises and, and props to Vigo for being comfortable with it and doing a whole fight scene in that way. Um, what a trooper. Yeah. And I'm sure they had mats and everything when you can't see them, but not for every shot. And that's they're in a sauna. That's not like Mission Impossible where the whole bathroom is constructed out of foam. Yeah. <laughs> so this they've they committed to that fight sequence. And it's a great fight sequence. I mean, Jesus Christ. I I love it. <laughs> Hell yeah. I do too. So all right. I guess we can get into the changes I would make. Yeah, and I'm going to be interested to hear these because you love the movie so much. I'm surprised right. that you'd change anything. I mean, I don't feel like I would make a lot of changes to this particular film. But at the same time, I've developed my own voice. Yeah. And so I'm definitely not a Cronenberg clone. So I would obviously want to do things my way mm -hmm. as opposed to just copying what they did. And so since we're, we were just talking about it, so I'll start with the sauna fight. Um. I like to go bigger with my films. I want my films to pack a bigger punch, especially for climaxes. Right so, on. so as much as I love that scene, for me, that would be the midpoint in my movie. 
Okay. So, so we're getting a longer Eastern Promises then. Well, not necessarily a longer film, but I just think that that scene and that plot point would come up sooner. Okay. Because you don't necessarily need to know that he's an undercover cop at, for that scene to take place. You just, you're realizing that Sam Yan is setting him up to die. And that's a twist that comes later. Yeah. But you, you don't need to know that. You just need to know that, oh, that guy tried to set him up or, oh, they mistook him for, um, for Kirill. And that's why they wanted to kill him. All right. I mean, yeah, fair enough. No, that actually, that'd be a good midpoint. Yeah. So I would just, I would just rearrange the events so that that could happen sooner in my version because it, as good of a fight scene as it is, I think this film could benefit from some excitement like that sooner. Yeah. Of course, and then we'll get to the ending, because if that's the midpoint, then I need an even bigger climax. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, we'll, we'll get to that in a second. Um, okay, so the next thing is I would go in a different direction with the style for the score. For me, it's too Godfather and almost like Italian sounding. Okay. And... That didn't really track with me since it's a Russian mafia. You know, I would have to do my research and figure out what would be more appropriate. And I could be wrong. Maybe the sounds they use are from that culture. um, And I'm just not as familiar. But it still didn't resonate as Russian or Mother Russia for me. Huh. Oh, I just think it's interesting that you're bringing this up because I normally remember movie soundtracks really well. Like... If I'm thinking of a few movies in my head right now, like I can remember Uncut Gems soundtrack. Like I'm, I'm thinking of multiple ones. I can't recall any mu- like music in this movie, like at all. And I think that's because, I mean, for one, it is subtle and it's not the forefront of the film, which is fine. You can do that. It's there just to assist. But at the same yeah. time, it, it can be argued that the score isn't memorable at all in this film. It's, it's yeah. pretty generic no, it's for the most part. And... And again, I think it just I think it leans into almost Godfather cliches for mob movies. And that's why it sounds Italian to me, as opposed to the proper ethnic group, which is Russian. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would All feel right. like I would want to look up more. Uh, more sounds and scores that fit with that Mother Russia or even like classic songs from Russia that maybe would be associated with Semyon's character since he's an older generation or the uncle character. That's honestly, I'm no composer. That's a conversation I would have with the composer. Um, and I could maybe send him things that I like, but I would definitely have darker, moodier tones in my score as well. I mean, still not taking the forefront away from everything else that's happening but just to help assist with those dark tones fair change fair this is the next change i would make maybe the timing was wrong then but i think it would have been very strong for kirill to kiss nikolai um or at least try like at that at the climax with the baby yeah yeah we talked about they're holding each other and he's trying to prevent him from killing the baby and he's trying to talk him down I felt like that would have been like a really strong scene and like, and then not have the whole, uh, his sexuality, is he a a homosexual or not? Have it not be ambiguous and really have that sort of him stepping into his power in that scene and being like, I've always had these feelings for you and sort of take that move. And I'd have to write it and figure it out, honestly, to know how Nikolai would respond to that. There's one side where I think, Maybe he would accept that kiss because all he cares about is maintaining his cover, maintaining that relationship, but most importantly, 
saving that baby's life. Yeah. So I'm thinking on one side, he would be like, okay, I just have to let this happen. Another part of me thinks that maybe he would stop him and kind of keep him in his place, but still accept him and just be like, it's okay. I'm, I, I always knew hmm. and I accept you and like not accept the kiss, but then bring him in for that hug and then take the baby from him. Either one could be really interesting. And you know, when I was watching it, I was kind of surprised that they didn't kiss. They got so close and their foreheads are touching and they're breathing into each other's mouths kind of. And it would have been very powerful. Yeah. What you do on yeah. most actors do on most movies yeah. just because that's how you shoot movies. But <laughs> um, this was done in 2007. I don't think they maybe they weren't ready for that in a, such a big movie. Um, but I yeah. think audiences could handle that now. Uh, and I think it would be a stronger ending and a stronger arc for his character. I could see that working pretty well. Yeah. Yeah, because I just don't think there was any benefit in leaving his sexuality obscure. And I think it didn't seem obscure to you because you're a woman. And I feel like that's not something that you care so much about. Like, you, oh, OK, you're gay. Yeah. Like, that's kind of how it comes across for most women. But I definitely can tell you as a man watching it. You need definitive proof. Fair. Like, you, you're just not going to assume that about a man, and you're not going to just accept that blindly about a man. For me, I felt like there was enough, and and in the context, I felt like they were trying, I thought it was definitive. Uh, that was my assumption, but yeah, I mean. Yeah, I think it's just, like I said, it's easier to accept as a woman, because it's you're not wrapped up in the whole masculinity aspect of it. Yeah. Because in our society- we have men's sexuality wrapped up in their masculinity. So we tend to think that they're one in the same. And of course, if you're supposed to be perpetuating a masculine role in the, in your lifestyle, that's where it's a detriment to you yeah. uh, to be out as gay. As a man, I've seen it plenty of times where people just call people gay. Like it's just, you just make those cause it's an insult. Cause it's a way to belittle you and berate you. And so it doesn't actually, yeah, necessarily mean there's any credence to it it just means that you know this is an insult because you are straight and because you are masculine this is a way for me to attack your masculinity yeah that plays out a lot so it's kind of like well i didn't ever see anything that definitively said yes he is gay and like i there was never any proof um just word of mouth rumors and accusations i just uh, but again circling back i think I think that is a good character arc for him. And I think it does explain a lot. Yeah. And it makes him that tragic figure that we come to empathize with. So I feel like, yeah, why not? Why keep it ambiguous? Why not just accept it? And, but also know that his friend accepts it as well. Yeah. For me, I felt like I saw it in his eyes and body language. I felt, you know, Vincent Cassell is such a powerful actor. I feel like he conveyed it in those ways to me, but I could also yeah. see how people watch it and still think it's am ambiguous. Right. Well, and then you, I mean, you know, you do have homophobic people and you do have um, closed minded people and they're just not as ready to accept uh, those lifestyles to begin with. So they're just not going to see it that way. Yeah, that's fair too. All right. And then uh, I guess last major change I would make um, is so I mentioned, you know, so if we make the sauna fight the midpoint, that means we need a bigger climax. Mm -hmm. What are we going to do now? <laughs> um, and that doesn't mean we need explosions, but I think I would do something with a bigger payoff. Like the stakes could be much higher uh, because right now, the way the movie 
plays out, we have a dramatic standoff. It's an emotional climax. Um, and I would keep that aspect, but I would want to add action to it. Because uh, she has a motorcycle, he has a he has a car. You could do a lot with that of them just going through the streets fast and trying to cut through traffic to get to that point in time because it is a race against time. And they don't really explore that at all. And maybe they didn't have the budget to, but it's one of those things where like they're at the hospital and he's like, oh, I know where he is. And then they immediately cut to their car pulling up to that point. There could be a lot more tension in the race to get there in time. Okay. Then once they get there, uh, Nikolai could have some people with him. He could have like four or five guys that work with his father or whatever that, you know, because, you know, why would you suddenly trust your screw up son that you've been saying is incompetent all this time to go take care of this for you? So, okay, I would I would frame it in a way where his father sends him there with like four or five guys and says, this is where you prove to me you're a man. This is where you prove to me you're my son and make it kind of this big emotional moment for him that he has to do it so his father will love him. And then you have these four or five guys there that become an added obstacle for when Nikolai shows up. So then you can have like a real standoff where Anna has to stay back. She's kind of being put in danger. You know, the Russian mafia guys, they could pull guns or knives, maybe knives, because this is like the UK where, you know, guns aren't readily available. Um, so, you know, it could be like a knife standoff even, and you have Kirill backing up, uh, like he's getting ready to throw the baby in and the guys are trying to keep Nikolai at bay. And, you know, however that would play out, obviously he can't kill the baby like, like Kirill gives in. And that could be an interesting scene where, you know, maybe he goes to stab one of the guys and like together, um, Kirill and Nikolai overpower Semyon's men together and kill them and save the baby. And and that they would kiss? Well, yeah, the- that would lead to the embrace because he still has to give him the baby. Okay, yeah. So after everybody's dead, then they kiss. Yeah, like I think they kill the guys because that's his friend. So he's not going to let those those people kill his friend. You know, so at this point, um, Kirill is hesitant to kill the baby. Uh, Nikolai's trying to talk him down, but these four or five extra guys won't let that happen, and they're ready to just kill Nikolai because they work for Semyon, the boss. I could see that working. And we already established that Nikolai is disposable. Yeah, I could definitely see that working. So, because I would just want some more, some higher stakes and some more conflict and obstacles to overcome than just talking your friend down. Yeah. Um, because you can still get that aspect of it. Because Kirill has to step in and maybe shoot a couple of the guys because they're going to stab his best friend. But that doesn't mean he's going to betray his father yet. And that doesn't mean he hasn't made up his mind. Um, So then he could be still backing up towards the water to kill the baby. And that's when we essentially resume the uh, ending we have as it's intact in the film right now. Mm -hmm. I would even like maybe a little moment of like him backing up and he's afraid and he almost falls in the water and Nikolai could grab him and save him from going into the water and pull him in. Um, But aside from that, I mean, it's pretty minor changes, honestly, all things considered. Um, It's getting really hyper-specific in like how I would want to add some action and play that out. But beyond that, I love this film (laughs) and I wish I made it. (laughs) Yeah, I could tell. That was fucking enthusiastic. Yeah. You're like, you're like getting into the block again stuff. You're like, I'd only make small changes and then I'd put this guy there and 
key light over here. It's Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There'd be three guys on the left and then there'd be two. One's near Anna and then the other. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I thought a lot about it, honestly. And, you know, I did, but it but it had a lot of inspiration on me. And, and I have like similar things going on in uh, Vince. And so, you know, I don't necessarily need to make Eastern promises. Yeah. If I could just make Vince one, one day. day. <laughs> I actually want to go back to that script someday soon, because, I mean, I wrote that a long time ago and. I would love to revisit it and see how I can make it better because I'm a much better writer and director now. I mean, it's been like at least eight years since I wrote that script. Eight or 10 years. Right. I mean, it's, I, I think I wrote it a year or two after I saw this movie. I don't think I wrote it immediately after watching it. So yeah, I mean, it's been like eight, somewhere between eight and 10 years. So, I mean, obviously I've grown in my craft since then. Yeah. And I have a bachelor's degree from a school and everyone cares about that in this industry. Yeah, those are super important. It's like you can't even make a movie unless you've been to yeah, film school. Yeah, super valuable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, God. I, you know what, what's funny is we had a film school in our high school, so I didn't learn shit in college. It was the same thing. Yeah. I took my high school film uh, education for granted. I thought, okay, this is high school, but when I get to college... That's when we'll really learn the film stuff. And they just, it was the same thing. It was film 101 and intermediate and now try to make a short all over again. <laughs> yeah. And, I, and that's, that's not just me being an asshole. Everyone I went to college with who went to my high school agreed. Like they, they were in the program with me and we were all like flabbergasted that we were in these classes with college people who didn't know anything about filmmaking. It was difficult. I mean, I get it though. Not everybody grew up in LA with a, with Sony pictures down the street from their high school. Yeah, no, we were lucky for that, but. I just, you know, you never, you never realize how lucky you are until like after the facts, like you're, yeah. when you look back, you're like, oh yeah, that's not normal. <laughs> well. All right. Jesus, I guess that's it, man. That's the, that's the fucking podcast. Yeah. All right, guys. Well. If you guys want to see Vince donate money on coffee. <laughs> you can hear the passion in his voice for Russian gangster films. Make sure you follow, subscribe, and stay tuned. Uh, our next episode is going to be Enter the Void, mm -hmm. filmed by Gaspar No. Yep. And that's Haley's pick. Pretty psychedelic film, so. Yeah, it is very psychedelic, and boy, oh, do yeah. we have a hot take on it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, follow us on the socials. I'm at Ryan Rochelle, R-A-C-H-A-L-L, or Dakins Productions, D-A-A-K-I-N-S. I'm Spooky Kooky Haley on Instagram. And we'll figure out that Twitter situation for you. We'll let you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm bad at Twitter. Yeah. All right, guys. Bye. See you next time. Why did I do that? I hate saying bye like that. That just came out. Can you edit that out? <laughs> Maybe. I'll think about it. I hate your creative control. <laughs> the Films I Wish I Made is a Dakin's production. Dakin's Productions is a multimedia company that does more than just make content. We also make original art such as comics and movies. But only with your support can we consistently thrive in the online arena of entertainment. Check out our coffee page where you can access premium and exclusive content for the right price. Until next time.